Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, what if I told you that a silent killer worse than alcohol, nicotine, and drugs is likely lurking in your kitchen cabinets and even your child's school cafeteria. Oh, man, that's that's rough because silent killers are the worst killers. I far prefer the loud ones, so I know they're coming. And uh, of those substances that you mentioned, only some of those are my favorites. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm instantly concerned. I'm going to start looking around in my cabinets and trying to figure out where this uh, nefarious force is hiding. Now, lest I be accused of plagiarism, I should give attribution. That is a quote. <laughs> From an article on a on an alternative medicine website called Mercola okay. that is about MSG, the food additive MSG. You've often heard of it associated with Chinese food, probably. It's monosodium glutamate. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But we wanted to start with some of the scare tactics because you had to hear it right here that MSG is, quote, worse than drugs, <laughs> worse <laughs> than drugs. I love that the the blandness of that statement. Uh, worse than all drugs. Worse than drugs. But but surely better than some drugs. And then also, <laughs> are we just talking about well, what drugs? Right, the drugs that take our pain away, or the drugs that uh, that ruin us? I mean, it's there. There's so many different interpretations of that statement. Quick side note, Robert. What's your favorite fictional drug from a movie or book? Oh, you know, I I have to go with the spice, but I also like uh, Samuda. Which is the, the drug that they, uh, that some individuals in the Dune universe take and then they listen to some sort of weird music, Samuda music that mm-hmm. can only really be processed while you're taking this particular drug. Well, MSG is worse than that too. <laughs> because what does it do? I don't know. It does a lot of stuff apparently. If you listen to, to everyone who has ever complained about MSG, that has ever proposed and, you know, a, a negative symptom of taking MSG, then it sounds like just the worst thing imaginable. Okay, so Robert, tell me your MSG story. How did you become acquainted with this killer, this silent killer chemical? All right, so growing up, I was I don't remember ever being privy to any direct anti-MSG messaging. Like, nobody had me watch a video. Nobody made me read a paper uh, about it. It was just this thing that you just heard, oh, well, MSG is is to be avoided. You go to the local Chinese restaurant in your small American town, there's likely to be a no MSG sign there on the wall just to, uh-huh. to let you know before you even think about coming in the door that there is going to be no MSG. And I... I and uh, not even knowing what it was, I just kind of had it in my mind that it was some sort of some sort of chemical, some sort of cheating substance that it's allowed the the, the, the yeah. individuals that are making the food to to trick you into enjoying something. It's the anabolic steroids of food. Yes. It's the doping of food. But as we're going to discuss in this episode, there's there's virtually nothing to any of this uh, this fear mongering, uh, decades worth of fear mongering that still refuses to completely go away. Yeah, I think. We will, in the end, probably be able to speculate a good bit on where a lot of this fear comes from. But I encountered it, too, when I was growing up. So I remember one of my favorite restaurants when I was a kid was this little brick storefront Chinese restaurant in Chattanooga, Tennessee called China Lee. Okay. I loved going there. They made some delicious Szechuan beef. I I don't know if I'd still think it was good if I went there today. I don't know if they're still open. But at the time, I loved it. And I would go there and I would, you know, I was a kid, but. If you had this experience at Chinese restaurants when you were little where you just like eat to the point of pain oh, yeah. and then you'd keep going. <laughs> uh, but I also remember this slight psychological taint to the experience because I would hear adults talking about Chinese food and MSG. There was this clear link in my mind that I'd overheard from adult conversation and I didn't really understand it. But what I generally did get was that MSG was some sort of dangerous chemical and it was all in Chinese food. But if it was so dangerous, why did we eat it? Why did my parents take me? <laughs> yeah. And then the other side of it, too, for me, is that, OK, it's something that they're using to cheat you into into they're, they're cheating. They're making the food taste better than it is. But the same thing can be said of pretty much every food additive that has ever been. Every spice in your cabinet is a way to cheat and make food taste better. This cooking, is what salt is. Yes, that's what the salt, pepper, everything else like that. Just the act, the art of cooking is. 
is, hey, how can we make this particular uh, slab of protein, this particular uh, heap of vegetables, how can we make this biomass uh you know, taste better and and be more uh, digestible for the human body. Yeah, but of course, I, I don't know. I I got this message somehow. So when I was a kid, I do remember one instance where a friend of mine was sick. Mm-hmm. He was like laid out on the couch for a couple of days, and I remember it was attributed to the MSG content of some Chinese food he'd eaten the day before. <laughs> uh, I don't know where that idea came from. I don't know if their doctor told them that or if that's just what a parent concluded. But yeah, that's what they said. And then later, I, I think I softened a little bit on MSG, but in a in another disgusting way because I, the next time I remember encountering it in my life, I was in college. And a friend and roommate of mine at the time was teaching me how to make the, a recipe for this dip that came from his family. I think his grandmother had made it or something. Mm-hmm. All but, the recipes you learn in college tend to be, yeah, <laughs> tend to be a little suspect. I, I, I wouldn't judge this friend of mine by this dip, but the dip in my memory is a little gross. So it had uh, Philadelphia cream cheese. Chopped up sandwich meat, which I believe was budding beef. Okay. And then sliced green onions. And the fourth ingredient was a container of shake on seasoning called accent. Mm. And I was like, what is this? I think I might have seen this in my grandmother's kitchen cabinet, but otherwise I didn't know what it was. And it said, wakes up food flavor. Well, that sounds good. You don't want your food to be asleep. So I looked at the ingredients and the, the primary ingredient or actually the one ingredient. Yeah. In this food flavor alarm clock was monosodium glutamate, MSG. MSG, the stuff that had supposedly laid out my childhood friend with a body leveling illness <laughs> and the stuff that that I always heard these creepy rumors about. Yeah, I, you actually brought in a little container of accent. And uh, one of the things I love about it is that, first of all, there's there's no mention of MSG. Uh um, monosodium glutamate is mentioned once on the back, and presumably they don't have to say contains MSG because it is pure MSG. You know, they save on the printing for this thing because they don't have to print ingredients every time. <laughs> it just says ingredient and ends with a T, colon, yeah. monosodium glutamate. But they, it's really an attempt to rebrand it, right? Yeah. Accent instead of MSG, because MSG sounds, I mean, it's, it's the, the letters are tainted for us. Because of these just decades of negative connotations, which we'll get into. And I would say it's also by the general problem of chemophobia, pe- yeah. people being afraid of chemical names of things, which we'll get to in the end. And I, I think we should end by, number one, having an accent or uh, monosodium glutamate, if you want to avoid the branding, taste test oh, yes. on mic. And then see see if anything horrible happens to us. And then also we should suggest some rebranding. Yes. So as as we're going, start thinking of new names for MSG, uh, ways we can we can reclaim this chemical uh, for our tasting pleasure. Right. So we should go back and tell the story of MSG. Like, where did this food additive come from? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get uh, to the origin story here. Monosodium glutamate. This chemical was discovered by Japanese chemist Kikunai Ikeda back in 1907. So. He was investigating flavoring in asparagus, tomatoes, and especially uh, dashi seaweed soup uh, that has a strong umami flavor, that that pleasant, savory taste. Yeah, we're much more familiar with umami these yeah. days. We hear about it all the time in, in cooking shows and stuff like that. Now, I think decades back, people were way less familiar with the concept of umami, exactly mm-hmm. what it was. But umami, what is it? It's that deeply savory, meaty flavor. It's not the same as something being salty, but it's uh, it's that kind of deep flavor that you get from cheeses and meats and tomatoes. It's there in anchovies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's almost there's some wonderful descriptions out there for umami and umami is such a wonderful one word description because just rolling off your tongue once yeah. you've tasted it, uh, the two just go perfectly together. Uh, but yeah, you kind of have to have tasted umami and most of us have, uh, to really appreciate it. So Japanese cuisine obviously had this concept of umami. They, they know what this delicious savory flavor is, but what Ikeda was able to do was to pinpoint the chemical cause of this flavor, which was this substance that we now know as glutamate. Yes. Um, in particular, he pinpoint yeah, he pinpointed uh, glutamic acid. So 
this is an amino acid, non-essential because the, the human body and various plants and animals can produce it on their own. And in the body, uh, glut- glutamic acid is often found as glutamate, uh, one of the most abundant uh uh, neurotransmitters in the body, and it plays an important role in memory and learning. And according to the FDA, you can probably consume 13 grams of it a, d- of it a day in the protein in your food. Right. So glutamate's already there in your diet. Yeah. Almost definitely you're eating foods with glutamate in them. Yeah. If you're having tomatoes, glutamate. If you're having Parmesan cheese, glutamate. Um, and certainly if you're having some of the more processed food items out there, uh, various potato chips, et cetera, you're having glutamate. Glutamate is just part of eating <laughs> Uh, as humans. Yeah, so there's no, there's no magic going on, right? right? This is just a standard dietary chemical, and as such, we do have receptors that are sort of programmed to taste it. Yeah. All that Aikida did here is he took that naturally occurring glutamate, and he solved the problem of then, well, how do I, how do I synthesize it? How do I mass produce it? How can I get this in a form, uh, that's stable to the consumer? And uh, basically what he did here is he figured out he could synthesize the molecule by first extracting the glutamate from seaweed and then mixing it with water and just common table salt to stabilize the compound. Thus, monosodium glutamate, MSG, is born. It's table salt and it's glutamate. Yeah, we really can't drive drive that home enough that there's there's no like extreme chemical um, process here. There's no weird magical ritual involved. This is just salt and glutamate that come together into a stable form. So I have to tell you that I don't know where I encountered this idea, but years ago, what I heard about the way MSG works in your mouth mm-hmm. is that it literally, quote, tears holes <laughs> in your tongue to make you taste things more intensely. <laughs> I can't remember where I came across this, and I know I passed on this piece of false information to people plenty of times. Like it tears a hole in the fabric of our reality. Yeah. And then uh, demon taste from another universe come in. Uh, <laughs> I never heard anything quite that extreme, but I do remember hearing that it like opens up the taste buds with the, with the emphasis this being that it's doing so in, in, in an unnatural way, yeah. in an almost like a, a drug-induced way. Right. It would be fascinating to find out where these rumors started about its its mechanism of action. But anyway, so it went on to become a popular commercial food additive. It wasn't just anymore people putting glutamate-rich foods into their foods to season it. Like, you could put Parmesan cheese or, uh, or seaweed or something like that mm-hmm. into your food to boost the glutamate content. Or you could just isolate monosodium glutamate and add that to increase this umami flavor without adding the other ingredients. Right. I mean, basically, especially now with with umami, I feel like it's been uh, very much a a favorite keyword among Mm -hmm. uh, foodies uh, over the past decade, uh, you know, and and maybe longer. But there are plenty of ways to to glute up your food to get that glutamate in there Mm -hmm. without MSG. MSG is just kind of a a quick and easy way to do it. Right. Um, so this this quick and easy way is rolled out uh, by the Japanese company uh, Ajinomoto, and it it's uh, you have this instant crystalline powder that's uh, that's ready to just sprinkle on your food, and it's an instant hit. Of course, uh, they they patented it in 1909, and uh, today the form that you encounter tends to be made from beets and corn. It's known as MSG in the States, but uh, Akita's name still sticks elsewhere in the world, Ajinomoto, or Essence of Taste. You can still buy it with uh, um, under that name uh, at various, uh, you know, any, anywhere you buy, uh, you know, your local Asian market should have it uh, with that title. And I should also point out that um, that Aikido was like he was tremendously successful with this. He was apparently fab- fabulously wealthy uh, in the uh, early 20th century Japan. Died in the 1930s, mm-hmm. but uh, this was his. He really hit it out of the park with this fabulous flavor enhancer. So what could possibly go wrong? What could what could possibly stop this juggernaut uh, of taste from just taking over the world? Well, we will answer that question right after we get back from this break. And we're back. So, Robert, MSG, uh, glutamate, 
big flavor success story in the history of, of food flavoring and additives. Yes. Big, big flavor success story. Absolutely. Huge. Absolutely huge. It, yeah, it, it is immediately a hit just throughout Asia. It allows that, allows uh, people to give a meaty taste to non-meaty dishes. I've read that it was especially uh, popular among Buddhists abstaining from meat during uh, periodic uh, abstinence periods, uh, various, uh, you know, meat-related fasts. And uh, in America, too, and in Canada, elsewhere in the world, it, it really uh, gains popularity. I mean, you, you especially have to look back to World War II era, post and pre-war America to see just how ready we were for uh, a flavor enhancer like this. On one hand, you had... Um, you, you had the, the, the military industrial complex here, all right? You had uh, the U.S. military needing to, to boost the flavor and otherwise dull soldier rations, so they turned to MSG. Uh-huh. Easy way just to, to enhance uh, some, some limited uh, food options there. Easier than adding bacon to everything. Right. And then uh, industrialization of, uh, of all that food, it comes home with them after the war into the American household. But even before World War II, we were essentially priming ourselves for such a, an advancement through the, the home economics philosophy. So uh, there was recently a wonderful um, interview on NPR's Fresh Air uh, with Terry Gross. Uh, married culinary historians Jane Ziegelman and Andy Coe appeared to promote their uh, book, A Square Meal, The Culinary History of the Great Depression. <laughs> which uh, it's a great, great interview. Yeah. Definitely check it out. Um, but uh, they point out that uh, the home economists of the age, they were not really into flavor. They were they were saying, all right, you need to you need to be fed. You, you need to be healthy. Uh, uh, you have limited uh, means of pulling that off. Here are some strategies to do it. Yeah. You can worry about spice when uh, you, when when things are going a little better for you. So they pushed pushed American science-based ways to get the best out of available food rations, often in bizarre dishes uh such as one that they discuss on in the interview uh, as being quote wrong in every possible way <laughs> was a recipe that featured uh canned corned beef, plain gelatin, canned peas, vinegar and lemon juice. Oh boy. So so Oh man, these these old recipes uh, you see from like oh, know, yeah. magazines from the the World War II era, where it's like, yeah, pour a can of lima beans and spam together. There you go. <laughs> but but you can see where it's like they're engineering a meal. It's an engineering approach to yes. to the American meal, and so MSG is is perfect for that. Crystals it's, that you sprinkle on there. Yeah, it's modernism brought to food. Yeah, and it was apparently when it was first marketed uh, to the American uh, housewife. It was in this slender little bottle, uh, you know, full of the, the flavor crystals. It seemed like the future had arrived in the form of this, uh, this wonderful enhancer. Um, and here's another important little, little fact that, uh, Ziegelman and Co. point out though. The home economist of the day who were creating all these strange recipes to make the best out of the available rations, they could have they could have found a, a lot of great, healthy, and flavorful ways to get the most out of those rations if they turned to America's immigrant communities. Right. Uh, but of course, for a number of reasons, including implicit or even overt racial bias or xenophobia, they didn't do it. And I'm not just talking about um, you know certainly uh, Asian immigrants, but even like Italian immigrants. Um, they they had uh, they had various uh, you know tactics to to make the best out of uh, the available rations. So with the with Italian immigrants, of course, you know, depending on more on pasta. Uh, one of the examples they point out is uh, is using dandelion greens that uh, uh, Italian immigrants uh, carried that tradition with them, and that would have been a wonderful uh, a wonderful tactic to. Um, to educate uh, the American public about, but they didn't. Instead, it's more like gelatin and meat and stuff. Yeah, well, us who live in big cities in America today, we're just so used to international cuisine. Mm -hmm. I I think it's a thing that's become thoroughly part of American culture to have a Chinese restaurant, a Mexican restaurant, a Thai restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and, and all that. And it can be kind of hard for us to imagine what it was like for, I don't know, maybe a lot of Midwesterners or yeah. something like that to, to, uh, see these strange foods from exotic lands. Yeah. And- well, I feel like we can all, um, in many cases, we can, we can look to, Older members of our family, yeah. Uh, particularly, I remember. I, I think there were stories of this with uh, grandparents on on, my, on both my side and my wife's side of the family. Both of them had very similar stories about going to an ethnic restaurant. 
in, in my own grandfather's case, it was a Mexican restaurant and didn't want to try any of the, the more exotic food there, <laughs> ordered an American hamburger and complained for the rest of his life that they served him a quote, a hot hamburger. Uh, it was a, you know, a harrowing experience, <laughs> but, I, but I feel like this is kind of a, a universal experience yeah. among of, uh, among a lot of, uh, older Americans and now in many cases deceased Americans where suddenly there were all these, these more flavorful options, these exotic options, these new options. And I, you know, it's only natural to approach those, uh, those new flavors with a certain amount of skepticism to say nothing of, you know, your, your, your own taste your own palate being less uh uh inclined to enjoy those that new barrage of flavors right but of course as we have warned you at the end of this great msg success story did come some backlash yeah and when we say success story we're not just talking about other oh, chinese restaurants but it's in it's being used in everything oh yeah, yeah. it's in it's in children's cereals it's in soup it's in soup it's just all over the place it's just a become a standard part of the industrialization of food but also just like just just cooking in your kitchen and then we enter a, a period in the in the early 60s where people began to, uh, to, to to question some of the chemicals in their food. Uh, There's a big book that came out in 62 by uh, Rachel Carson titled Silent Spring. Mm-hmm. That kicked off a, a lot of, um, a great deal of backlash just against chemicals in cooking yeah. uh, in general. I mean, I don't think I'd try to blame Rachel Carson for irrational chemophobia. No, no, no. But indirectly, it might have had this unintended influence. It starts this, it, it starts this narrative yeah. uh, in, in, in many people's minds it, it forces us to 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 ask some good some important questions about how our food's coming together and where it's coming from right but uh, but as we all know um, a little information uh, can uh, can sometimes be just enough to uh, spin off some some paranoia okay Robert where did this narrative of Chinese restaurant syndrome come from well it's everyone seems to trace it back to one particular letter published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968. Okay. All right. And uh, it's it's actually written by a Chinese-American doctor by the name of Robert Ho Man Kwok. And he claimed that 20 minutes after eating at a northern Chinese food restaurant, so we're talking, you know, strong flavoring, seasoning, wheat flour, as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, more the spicy punch of central Chinese cooking or, or any of the other various uh, culinary traditions to be found in China. I think uh, northern Chinese cooking is less rice centric, right? It has more like wheat noodles and Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Rice south, uh, you know, wheat north. So he he's saying, all right, I ate at this uh, North Chinese uh, food restaurant, and that resulted in, quote, numbness at the back of the neck, gradually radiating to both arms and the back, general weakness and palpitation. Okay, so he ate a big meal. That, that's the that's the thing. And that's the that's one of the questions that keeps coming up for me as I read any of these accounts is like, who among us has not eaten restaurant food and in many cases, eaten far more restaurant food than we should right. have and paid a price. Yeah, you, you gorged yourself on some salty delights and mm-hmm. then you felt kind of bad afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was salty and it was rich and it was, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, we, we all have those stories. It's a little much to start looking around for the, the one secret ingredient that caused it. Now, in, uh, in Robert Homan Kwok's uh, letter, he's he had a couple of theories. He said, well, maybe it's a certain cooking wine that they're using. Maybe it's just that high sodium content, which certainly would not be unheard of in North Chinese uh, cooking. Or perhaps it's that MSG. Mm. Now... Not everyone bought this right away, as um, as Ian Mosby points out in his uh, his uh, his excellent paper, that wonton soup headache, the Chinese restaurant <laughs> syndrome, MSG, and the making of American food, nineteen sixty eight through nineteen eighty. Uh, there was actually one reader who wrote in and congratulated the journal for fooling its readers and suggested that the real author of the letter was surely one Doctor Hugh Man Croc, as in I guess like a croc of. Of uh, I guess that's a play on Ho Man Quack. Ho Man Quack, yeah. Then yeah. instead, is a, like a yeah. It's it's not a great joke. No, <laughs> I'm not putting it out as a great joke. But certainly, here's an example of someone saying, "Hey, this is this sounds like malarkey. Um, why'd you even print this letter?" Well, even if this guy was correct, that's no need to make fun of somebody's name. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, 
This is not the only person who wrote back in. Others wrote in with shared experiences, though not all about Chinese or even Japanese cuisine. There were even some who wrote in about kosher delis where they were having this this experience. So almost immediately there is this just this sense of uh, of other there's a sense of xenophobia in the equation. Now, Robert, I have a hypothesis that I think maybe we should. I don't know if we, we're tricky enough to test this, but. Uh-huh. Sometime we should try out something like this. Just say like, hey, have you ever noticed after you and then name some common but not all too common phenomenon? Like you ever notice how after you eat uh lamb or, you know, mm-hmm. something like that? I, I guess I thought of that because your name <laughs> Uh, you you have this strange feeling. We will get people writing in saying like, oh, yeah, I've had that before. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm pretty sure we'll get it. Like I, anytime I drink a lot of fizzy water, I feel like I am going to float up towards the ceiling and, uh, and, you know, and grind up in a fan. Have you ever noticed that every time you drink one of those energy drinks that has taurine in it, you start to see over the dunes of time? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if enough people just sort of raise the question, then we, uh, we begin to, to, to find the answer in our own uh, recollection. Oh yeah. That's happened to me. I did feel a little weird after that last big meal I ate at that Chinese restaurant. But that's one level, right? Just a bunch of people talking about it and saying, "Hey, did that? Did you did you feel weird after you had General Tso's chicken?" Uh, which they wouldn't have at this point, I don't think, uh, as it uh, had not quite been invented yet, if I'm remembering the timeline correctly. But uh, but what complicates things is, is that science then enters the scenario, as well it should, right? I mean, science enters the scenario to answer questions, to get to the bottom of what, if anything, is going on here. Right, so it looks like we needed to to have some uh, some studies, some organized scientific investigation of whether MSG is really causing people's eyes to fall out and their <laughs> to bleed from the ears and their arms to leap out of their sockets. Well, I mean, you're you're exaggerating, but not but not too much. Um, yeah, so the, basically, the whole episode here gains legitimacy when neuro, neurologist Robert Bick and pharmacologist Herbert H. Schomburg at Albert Einstein College of Medicine published an article in Science on February twentieth, twenty first, nineteen sixty nine. In this experiment, they administered uh, MSG orally and intravenously to test subjects and then concluded that MSG could produce the Chinese restaurant syndrome in typical recipe dosages. So that's essentially the big first scientific shot fired here, where suddenly there's a study that seems to back up what everyone is feeling and reporting about their their, their symptoms following uh, consuming Chinese food. Wait a minute. You said administered MSG orally and intravenously. Yeah. How many foods can you think of that are fine when you eat them and you <laughs> eat them all the time? But if you were to administer them intravenously would be a big problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, hook not hook me up to the soy sauce. Ivy. <laughs> Indeed. And that's uh, that's that's one of the problems that continues to to uh, to to raise its head throughout the scientific investigation of MSG is like what kind of dosages are we talking about and then how is it being consumed yeah. is it being consumed on an empty stomach is it because it's on food you wouldn't like really be taking just straight MSG right. and then on top of that are you shooting up with MSG something that nobody nobody is doing it is not on the menu at any restaurant uh-huh. i guarantee I guess they're trying to, I don't know, anticipate a scenario where somebody accidentally stabs himself with a fork and then an MSG container spills into the yeah. wound. And- <laughs> well, and there's, there's also a larger problem here. And that is, uh, as, as they, they laid out, MSG was widely used in Asian cooking, but it was also all over the U.S. food industry. Right. So where were, why were there not widespread accounts of these symptoms, um, popping up? Because someone had a bowl of soup. Why are there not cases all over Asia where the stuff had uh, already had like a had a couple of decades um, head start on right. everybody? You know why? Why didn't why didn't everybody in in China? Uh, why didn't everyone in Japan suffer these symptoms when they were uh, eating food with MSG in it? And why not the foods naturally containing glutamate? Yeah. Um, and as, uh, as uh, Ian Mosby uh, pointed out in that article, as early as 1969, 58 million pounds of MSG were being produced per year in the United States. So it's in every, it's in breakfast cereal, TV dinners, frozen vegetables, condiments, baby food. 
canned soup. It's it's everywhere, and nobody's talking about it except in reference to Chinese restaurants <laughs> and occasionally kosher delis. Well, it sounds at that point like some cultural concerns might be uh, as strongly motivating this this worry as any scientific or health concerns. Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, other studies also came out uh, pretty early to sort of spin this uh, uh, further out of control. In May 1969, uh, psychiatrist John W. Olney published a study in science that saw large doses of MSG in, uh, injected into mice, which subsequently suffered a host of distressing symptoms. Yeah, I bet they did. Yeah. <laughs> and he specifically raised the question of MSG in human pregnancy. And by July, uh, Olney, uh, Bick and Schomburg, uh, the two gen- Schomburg, the two gentlemen from the uh, previous study, they joined up with the uh, consumer advocate and future presidential candidate Ralph Nader to urge a Senate committee to ban the use of MSG in baby foods. And they got a number of companies to drop MSG that way. But the, the National Research Council ruled that it was fit for human consumption but not necessarily by infants. Yeah, so we want to emphasize that, as I've read in, in multiple critiques, a lot of these early studies of MSG were just plagued with flawed methodology. Mm-hmm. So I've seen claims that, they, of course, there's the problem of injecting it intravenously in huge quantities into mice and then saying, like, yeah, this seems like what would happen if you ate some. With yeah. Meal. I've seen some reviews that also claim that early studies were just not properly blinded. You, you tell mm-hmm. people, like, hey, we're going to give you some of this creepy chemical called MSG. Tell me how you feel after you eat it. Yeah, and and plus, you know, just think again. Think of your your spice rack, your spice cabinet. Virtually anything in there, if you're taking a high enough dosage, you're going to hurt yourself. Right. I mean, nutmeg, for instance. The cinnamon Nut- challenge. Yeah, cinnamon challenge is another one. Like these are both substances where if you take the the right amount, then it's either the it's just tasty. Maybe it's even has a, some slight uh, beneficial qualities. But if you take a lot of it, you're going to make yourself sick. In the case of nutmeg, you might have like the worst high of your life. Do not try it. Really, the worst. Trust me. The one of the worst. Like all the accounts I've read of of nutmeg induced, uh, uh, you know, psychological effects. They uh, it, it's it's dreadful. It's not worth worth trying. Uh, but it's been pointed out. Uh, <laughs> so when they say MSG is worse than drugs, is it worse than nutmeg? I can't see that it would be. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That basically, bottom line, you take you take too much salt, you're going to hurt yourself. If you drink too much water, you're going to hurt yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, and certainly, if you take too too much uh, monosodium glutamate, you are probably going to hurt yourself. But it comes down to the question, though: How are typical amounts of MSG impacting people? Well, this does bring me to a question that I was curious about, uh, not necessarily about the long-term effects or, or the supposed Chinese restaurant syndrome, but I was like, what's the acute toxicity of this stuff? Surely it's a food additive. This has to have been studied. Uh, so ex- acute toxicity is expressed in terms of LD50. You know, What's the dosage per body weight that kills 50% of lab animals that take it? Uh, and so I looked that up, and there there is indeed a study on the acute toxicity of MSG from 2013 called Monosodium Glutamate Toxic Effects and Their Implications for Human Intake, a review. And I just want to read, quote, according to a joint inquiry by the governments of Australia and New Zealand in 2003, a typical Chinese restaurant meal contains between 10 and 1,500 milligrams of MSG per 100 grams. I guess that's 100 grams of serving. Okay. The oral dose that is lethal to 50% of subjects, LD50 in rats and mice, is 15,000 to 18,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. That's 15 to 18 grams of this stuff for every kilogram of your body. Uh, by comparison, salt, you know, mm-hmm. table salt, sodium chloride, has an LD50 of 3,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So as far as acute poisoning goes, the LD50 of MSG is more than five times greater than that of regular table salt. You can kill yourself with a fifth as much salt. And at this rate, I did a little math. I hope my math is right here. If it is, a 160-pound or 72.5-kilogram adult uh, would have to eat at least 1,088 grams or about 2.4 pounds of MSG to attain lethal toxicity. Okay. So 
That's a lot of accent. Yeah, that's that is a lot of of accent. Certainly, I mean, how how much is in the uh, container that you brought in here? Uh, Let's see. This is two ounces or fifty six grams. So fifty six grams to one thousand eighty. I mean, you'd be eating a lot of these. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So there's a lot of back and forth that takes place after these initial studies. Dozens of studies come out in the 1970s. Some confirm, some contest uh, Olney's findings. The harshest critics accuse him of fear-mongering and exaggerating his findings. Uh, and you also see a split overall, with some studies looking at supposed long-term consequences of MSG, others looking at for short-term uh, uh, CRS symptoms. All over, the studies were inconclusive. And uh, a strong vein, if it's not already obvious, a strong vein of xenophobia runs through all of this. Yeah. Um, and, and Ian M- Mosby does a great job pointing this out in his article, which I'll link to on the landing page for this uh, episode. Uh, it says that you know the notion here that MSG is uh, is so harmful doesn't really resonate as much um, in Canada, uh, and certainly not outside of Chinese restaurants in the in the United States. And the, the, you see this tangent that runs through some of the the studies, some of the critics who are saying, "Well, the the, the Chinese are just misusing it. Chinese Americans, <laughs> Chinese uh, immigrants are misusing MSG." Well, um, yeah. If the Campbell's company wants to put a little MSG in the soups, I'm sure they're doing yeah. it responsibly. But I mean, the, those Chinese restaurants, they can't be trusted. Yeah, clearly they're they're tricking us into loving their food so. Much. Much by using a, a reckless amount of this, this, uh, this additive. So I mean, which is just completely nuts. Um, you know, uh, f- forget the the fact that cases of um, uh, of any kind of like uh, CRS uh, were virtually unknown in China and Japan. Uh, no, Chinese cooking was somehow excessive uh, or bizarre. Both of those uh, uh, descriptive t- terms were thrown out in some of these uh, these papers. Uh, enough to make uh, uh, MSG seem like a problem, along with the idea that that MSG was used in these establishments to perhaps conceal inferior food. That's another level. Yeah. Is that oh well they're 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 cooking bad food. And I think I, I got that yeah. meme when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. These Chinese restaurants, they use cheap ingredients, and people put MSG on it in order to trick you into thinking it's good. Yeah. Plus, just to give you an idea, just how varied the the symptoms of Chinese restaurant syndrome uh, become. Again, they kind of run the gamut uh, of, of anything you might complain of after a meal at a restaurant. Um it was, uh, it, it, you know, it just depended on who was reporting the symptoms. Uh, according right. to, to Mosby's uh, paper, they range from, you know, mild headache to depression to sexual arousal and, quote, an irresistible urge to undress. <laughs> <laughs> now, that may have been a misinterpretation of people unbuckling their belts after yes, eating true. a large meal at a Chinese food restaurant. Yeah, if you eat an enormous plate of, uh, of General Tso's chicken, once it you know became established in the 1970s as the... <laughs> the the American uh very with the with the emphasis on American Chinese uh, dish uh yeah you might have to undress a little bit to make it home you may sweat a little bit you may in some cases feel a little ashamed as I have at times for eating a dish uh so inauthentic at a, at a restaurant that has more authentic dishes available oh uh, I'm sure they don't judge you. No, they're just they're just happy that I'm there. I'm sure, but uh, but 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 still, they're, uh, just to, just to drive home the the fact that just about anything you might experience uh, after a meal was thrown at this uh, just sort of el- elusive uh, uh, amorphic uh, idea of Chinese restaurant syndrome. So to this day, studies continue to be inconclusive regarding the. Uh, the, the additive health effects here. Uh, there's a p- passionate debate on either side of the issue. And that's true. I mean, mm-hmm. food is one of those things that gets people really animated, oh, yeah. especially online. I, I just noticed p- people have incredibly intense opinions about food and food additives, maybe even as much as their political opinions. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't help either that you know, the scientific studies continue to look into the, the the benefits, the pros and cons of everything from wine to coffee to salt to various, uh, you know, various types of uh, calories. I mean, it, it's hard to keep up, right? Because one thing that seems, there's a study that comes out and says one thing is bad for you one year and then you just wait a few years and it's flip-flopped. And another study that manages to rise to the surface of media attention. Yeah, and I think, you know, we should also hedge here and say that, 
any food substance, anything that's part of your diet may have interesting effects, good or bad, that we can find out about. Now, Mm -hmm. us saying that there is not a clear picture that there's anything to worry about with normal levels of intake of MSG, uh, that that isn't to say that you can't use MSG in ways that could be harmful. We don't know. I mean, maybe if you're eating huge quantities of this stuff or maybe future research will will discover effects we don't know about yet. But as of today, th- there is no special reason to be concerned about moderate intake of MSG. Right. I mean, maybe if a racial stereotype pro wrestling manager were to throw it into your eyes, <laughs> uh, that would be harmful. But uh, but as far as anyone, uh, anyone can tell, the, cons- the consensus seems to be that A very few select individuals may react to large quantities of MSG on an empty stomach, but otherwise it is safe for the vast majority of people. So stop with those spoonfuls of MSG before breakfast. (laughs) It's just not good. Yeah, Uh, But yeah, the major food and health organizations don't say there's anything to worry about, right? The FDA and Mm -hmm. uh, World Health Organization, too. Yeah, in in 1995, the FDA issued a large-scale review by the Federal Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology, uh, an international uh, research review in 1987 by the World Health Organization and the Food and Agriculture uh, Organization of the United Nations all ruled on this as well, and they said, yeah, it's safe for the vast majority of people. Which is, you know, something that you can say for a vast number of additives out there. Uh, people have differing reactions to certain things, but, uh, but yeah, we were not throwing out the, uh, the, the, the salt because of it. And, uh, it, and we want to drive home again too that glutamates are in other foods. There are other ways to, to glute up a food product that yeah. don't involve actually using monosodium glutamate. If you've seen recipes and more of them are popping up these days as more people come to understand food science, you know, that beef up uh, a pot of soup or something like that by adding one of these glutamate rich ingredients mm-hmm. to it. They say, you know, add anchovies or add Marmite or add soy sauce or something like that. You're adding glutamates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's even still if you're, everywhere. you're not putting MSG directly in, you're doing pretty much the same thing. Right. And there's and as far as we can tell, there's nothing significantly different about the, about it being carried by the salt crystals as opposed to uh, you know being in the food in other ways. Yeah. Uh, Julia Moskin wrote an excellent uh, article on MSG for The New York Times back in 2008. And she pointed out that while the USDA, USDA requires labeling for MSG, they don't for all other glutamates in your food, especially processed foods like chips. Um, she, uh, uh, this is a quote from her article. She says, alternatively, there may also be included, uh, they may also be included under certain terms like vegetable broth or chicken broth. Thus, these ingredients are now routinely found in products like canned tuna. Vegetable broth is listed as an ingredient. It contains uh, hydrolyzed soy protein, canned soup, low-fat yogurts and ice creams, chips, and virtually everything ranch-flavored or cheese-flavored. Thus, <laughs> the richest source of umami remains your local convenience store. Grab a tube of Pringles or a bologna sandwich, and uh, glutamic acid is most likely lurking there somewhere. This whole thing about the labeling of MSG, it, it kind of makes me think about the, the GM foods labeling issue. Because in both cases, so some people want there to be a law where any food that is produced by an organism that has been genetically modified in, well, through laboratory procedures, because of uh-huh. course all crops have been genetically modified through agriculture is just a less accurate form of genetic modification. Uh, so pe- people want these foods labeled, right? So right. you, you label them so people know what they're getting. And on one hand, I kind of can't be opposed to that because I don't know. I mean, having, giving people more information about the products that they're consuming. I mean, that seems like there's hard, it's hard to disagree with that, right? Right. Transparency information. The only hesitation I would have to it is that it does tend to send a signal that there's something inherently to be worried about with genetically modified foods. It's almost as if the government is telling you, like, this is something that's maybe dangerous and you should be concerned when there's no indication that's the case. And the same thing is true with with MSG. I mean, I guess I'm in favor of labeling just because I'm in favor of all forms of transparency, but I do kind of worry that 
when you make foods containing MSG have some kind of special label, it stigmatizes it in a way that, you know, is unfair. There are other food additives we have no indication are any safer than MSG that don't require a special label. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, certainly too, when you get into like the, the, the fear of chemicals with MSG, chemical itself becomes this bad word where we're ignoring the fact that of course, all food is made of chemicals. We are chemical beings. We live in a chemical world. Um, our, our terms have a way of um, getting ahead of us, uh, yeah. rolling out of control. Now, Robert, here's the thing. Would you ever eat a piece of chicken fowl flesh that has been saturated in a bath of dihydrogen monoxide and sodium chloride? Well, you put it like that, um, then I, I start asking questions. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty sick, but obviously what I've just described is chicken that has been brined <laughs> in water and table salt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most good chicken is brined. It helps it stay juicy when you cook it. So, yeah, the, these we know that these chemical names uh, bring a lot of stigma with them. Like, oh, here's a good one. Do, do you know the uh, IUPAC name for lactose milk sugar? Uh, lactose milk sugar? Just milk sugar, lactose. It, it's mm-hmm. beta D galactopyranosyl 14 D glucose. Oh, that sounds like something that would infect an astronaut when they landed <laughs> on a, on a doomed world. Right. It's this, uh, it's this demonic prion that comes out of the rocks to <laughs> take over your brain. So anyway, I, I think we should try to come up with a, a, a simple rebranding of glutamate that can allow people to consume it without this chemical stigma, right? So you just call dihydrogen monoxide water. Of course, dihydrogen monoxide isn't the primary name anybody mm-hmm. uses. It's like a, it's a hoax name that uh, people came up with to make a joke. But of course, it does accurately describe the content of water. Yeah, I think to, to, to come up with some, some, some rebranding here, to come up with a better, better name for MSG, uh, we should we should sample some. We have yeah. we have some here on the table. While you were uh, speaking, I just cut up an avocado here. So uh, and I and hey, I even have uh, some chopsticks sticks here if you want to get uh, you know semi authentic. Well, let's cut a couple pieces of avocado here and then put. Uh, let's have a regular piece first and then put some accent. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and on eat the second one. Eat a normal piece and. Unaugmented slice here. It's good. Nice and buttery. Definitely, definitely ripe. Avocado is always good. Now I'm going to sprinkle some of our additive on there. Mmm. Now, you know, it's, uh, we didn't properly blind this test, did we? No, this is not a very so, scientific, uh. <laughs> so we know the test. difference, but I, I, I would say that I think I can naturally taste the difference. The one with the accent on it has a kind of deeper, richer, meatier flavor. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a salt, saltiness to it as well, though less salty than if I had just poured salt on it. Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah, it is. It, I mean, I'm definitely getting a sense of the umami and the salt, as if it has almost been like almost like it's been misted with soy sauce in some almost invisible way. Noel, I'm sure you can edit out some of these gross mouth noises. No, no, more more gross mouth noises. It's what we need if you can you can find some on one of those websites. Okay, Robert. Any irresistible urges to undress, or how long do we have to wait for um, the irresistible urge to undress I to think set in? My normal, like my base level of, uh, of of feeling like I need to take my clothes off is, is it remains the same, has, has virtually virtually not changed at all, uh, thanks to the MSG. Scale of one to ten, what is that base level? Um, in the summer, I guess it tends to be like a five. You know, that's the yoga in you talking. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a special word for this naked yoga? Naked yoga? Um, There's like hot yoga. And... I don't know. Yeah, there. I mean, I've seen it. Uh, you can go to naked yoga classes here in Atlanta. Um, oh, I I've didn't never know been that. to one, but you you can go. I mean, it. Uh, you know, issues of um, you know shared nudity, uh, nudity in a, a semi-public <laughs> environment aside, like if you want to. Really feel what your body's doing and, and see what your body's doing in these various poses. It makes sense, right? Okay, so 
rebranding of MSG. What's your word? I, I came up with one, but my wife actually came up with a better one. So the one I tried to do was savor. Kind of makes sense. It's savory. Mm-hmm. Put some savor on your food. Uh, but I my, can see it in the advertisement too. Savor, <laughs> savor. My wife Rachel suggested umami salt. I think that's perfect. That's the best one. I mean, I think too all the fancy salts you can buy these days, like the Himalayan pink salt. At, at, at our house, we have this like mushroom infused salt. Uh, salt. Rosemary so, salt. Yeah. So why not just market it as umami infused salt? Like that sounds perfect. It sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit sciency, but steeped in in culinary ter- terms, not chemical terms. And I think that's that's what a lot of it comes down to, like the terminology for your food. Is it, are you defining it by, you know, it's, uh, it's exotic aspects and, yeah. and then drawing in whatever your, your opinions are, uh, regarding the, 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 the foreign nature of the food or is it, or is it based in, in inhuman chemicals or is it something, uh, comfy and, and, uh, and mouth shaped like umami? Well, food always tastes better when it's got a nickname, right? You know, you never want the name of your food to be all that descriptive. Like mm-hmm. Just accurately descriptive food names are not appetizing. You don't want uh chicken packed with broth. Yeah. You know, you want, I don't know, uh, 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 uh happy fowl package. I yeah, well, like schnitzel <laughs> sounds great, right? It's fun. It, it, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's a yeah. fun word. Sounds better than like meat that has been beaten and fried and smothered. Right. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in, in, in the, uh, the words we choose to describe our food. And I think that the story of MSG, our continuing story of MSG, uh, really drives that home. Now I know in the wake of this episode, a lot of people are going to be very angry with us because we, we have not accurately described how all the scientists are bought off shills and how, uh, it's, uh, there's some evil industry that wants to poison our bodies to get us addicted to drugs that they also sell. I, I don't know. What is the conspiracy theory with MSG? Um, the Illuminati created MSG in order to, uh, fake the rapture so, so that, uh, believers would, uh, would ignore the second oh, coming of the Savior. You're, you're getting us back into last Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, right. I'm getting my notes confused a little bit here. Well, if you do actually want to get in contact with us, you can always do so as usual. And hey, pretty soon we are going to be in New York. We should that's mention right. this. That's right. We're going to be at Star Trek Mission New York. Yeah, that's going to go from September 2nd to 4th, 2016. It's going to be in New York City. And uh, our panel is going to be on Friday afternoon. So if you're interested in seeing us, you can come check us out there. Yeah, yeah. See us, hear us, and you know, there'll be an opportunity to chat with us um, after the, the presentation as well. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be a little Star Trekky, but not like so Star Trekky. That uh, that you're going to know all the answers already. Personally, I'm afraid that we are not Star Trekky enough for uh, the Star Trek convention. I think, I think convention. we're just the right level of Star Trekiness. You know, it's like people go into a, a dessert bar, right? And we are offering something where people look at it and they're like, "Huh, well, that I didn't expect to see that in the dessert bar. I will get that instead of pudding." That's the way I'm I'm kind of looking at it. We're like the uh, surrounded by cookies. We're going to be the brown butter nut muffin. Yeah, yeah. We're the uh, the, the the fig the fig bar <laughs> of uh, of dessert delights uh, at this particular uh, conference. And there, you know, if you're into Star Trek, it seems like the place to be because tons of uh, tons of guests, tons of cool uh, panels and talks. Uh, definitely worth checking out. All right, so Robert, in the meantime, if they want to find us, where can they do that? Oh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, which should have a facelift by the time uh, this episode comes out. Come check out, see how it's all working. Let us know what's not working. Uh, All the the joys of a new website. Uh, And also you'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Instagram. We are blow the mind on both, on all, pretty much all of those, but you can also generally find us on those platforms by just searching for stuff to blow your mind. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.